Good morning. We are thankful for the good crowd that is assembled here. We're thankful certainly to all of our members. We don't ever want to leave them out or leave you out. We're also thankful to the visitors that we have. I was looking around the room. I don't know how many true visitors that we have. We have a lot of folks who have been away for a time for various reasons. We certainly are glad to see some of our our sick back who are with us. Thankful for, for some who are uh, maybe not regulars exactly all the time. Uh, good to see Miss Inez with us again. She was the most popular lady in the lobby last week when she was here. Everybody was getting to visit with her. There are two Bills up here. It's not an optical illusion. We're glad to have, see uh, Bill back with us again visiting uh, this week. And so good to see so many who are not true visitors, uh, but we're thankful that you're here today. We want to take just a moment, as is sometimes the case. Our sermon doesn't exactly revolve uh, around Father's Day or a particular holiday, um, but we're thankful for our fathers, thankful for uh, their, them and their services. We are for our mothers. These holidays uh, mean different things to different people, different people as we think about the loss that so many face and, and various situations. Uh, but I just want to take a moment and, and acknowledge Cody again. Uh, most of you have known Cody for a long time, but if you've known Cody even as he's gotten older, uh, this is a very important day for Cody, being his first Father's Day. Uh, he, Cody is the king of dad jokes, and so if you've not heard Cody do his dad jokes, as the first Father's Day, he can really give, and we won't call him up to demonstrate any of those, but if you want a list of dad jokes on Father's Day, maybe to share with someone, we're glad that he can put those to good use now. And as uh, Bob said in his announcements, we're thankful for, for Cody and Santana and all the work they've done with our, our young people. We're going to continue a lesson this morning that we talked about last week, but if you're not with us, that's certainly okay. Uh, you can still take encouragement from what we're going to discuss this morning. If I ask you to consider your life, at some point in your life, you have probably experienced some sort of zeal. Think about when you were a young person, when we are like, well, like children. There are things that happen in our lives that are new to us. Maybe it's a, a, a new hobby or a, a something that we pick up on and we kind of fixate on that and we begin to love that and really practice that and find out all we can. We have a zeal for maybe something that we learn, a new skill or something that we do in school. I think about school. Most of us, when we were in high school, we had a, a school spirit a zeal that we went through, a time that we were, we were on fire and excited about the things that would go on in our school system or our sports teams. We transfer that over. For many of us, as we get older, we still enjoy sports and our sports teams. And, and whether it's football here in the South or, or some other sport, we have a zeal for our sports teams. Maybe as you got older, it was a hobby. Something even more recently, we think about the pandemic last year and, and so many that were locked down and we picked up new skills and we found new hobbies. We become passionate about that. We have zeal. But the question we've tried to consider is, have we ever applied it to our Christianity? For most people, and we mentioned this last week, for most people it's like, I, I'm, I'm going to come I'm going to be a Christian. I've been baptized, but, but that's about it. You know, I, I don't really don't have much else to give. Those people who are zealous Christians, they seem a little odd. They seem a little over the top. But as we said last week, it helps us to really understand what we're talking about when we talk about zeal. The zeal is simply a great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or an objective. So again, we go back to our sports teams. We go back to our hobbies. We go back to our families. And we have zeal about those things. And in fact, we went a step further last week. And we said the author of the book that we're using as a basis for this study, he said that it's more than a burst of energy from a cup of coffee or the energy drinks that we have in today's world. Things like that. You may drink something like that, consume it, and then you have energy for a, a while, but it fades. 
And we said last week that the Bible says, and I wanted us to emphasize it again, that zeal, Christian biblical zeal, is a burning desire to please God. That is what we're focusing on. That is what we are trying to talk about. And part of the reason that is important is because there is no doubt, zero doubt, that we serve a zealous God. And the great thing is, is that as we read his word, we can understand that he wants us to be like him. If he is a zealous God, and we don't have time this morning to look at all the passages that remind us of that, but if he is a zealous God, and he is, he wants us to be just like him. And so we could notice this morning that God desires for every Christian to be a zealous Christian. Every Christian to be a zealous Christian. Some of you heard last week's lesson, and some of you will hear this week's lesson, and you'll still think, well, he's not talking to me. I mean, again, those zealous Christians, they're over the top. They seem a little odd. They seem like they're too much at times, and I don't want to be like that, so he's not talking to me. But I'm telling you this morning that God desires for every single Christian to be a zealous Christian. Now, again, for the sake of time, we're not going to get deep into it. But a zealous Christian doesn't mean the person who leads singing the most. A zealous Christian doesn't mean the person who teaches class the most or the person who prays the most in a public manner. Don't get confused to say that that is what a zealous Christian is and I'll never be that. You don't have to be a public speaker. You don't have to be the person in the front of the room always to be a zealous Christian. But it is still true that God desires for every single Christian to be a zealous Christian. And what we want to do as we begin this morning is notice that we want to look at three aspects of the life of Jesus and realize that God truly does desire this. The first one is we would see the mission of Jesus. We can notice that God does, truly desires this by looking at three aspects of the life of Jesus Christ. And the first one is the mission of Jesus. Now, if you have your Bible, I don't have the whole verse on the screen, but let's look again at Titus chapter 2 and verse 14. You see, we touched on this last week, Titus chapter 2 and verse 14, because this verse, we might say, summarizes the mission of Jesus. And let's notice four things about it together here. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds or good works. Notice first, the mission of Jesus is that he purchased you. Number one, he purchased you. Jesus purchased you with his precious blood, as we have already considered that for a few moments together this morning. He gave himself to purchase you, me, and all people. But not only did he purchase us, number two, he purified us. He doesn't leave us in a sin-stained condition. He gives every Christian a new and pure life. Now, as I look around the room, many of you came to become or became a Christian at different points in life. Some of us were younger, and maybe we weren't quite so sin-stained, although certainly we are sinful people. For some of you, it was later in life, and you had lived a life of sin. And it's hard sometimes to recognize that God, through Christ, purifies us. But it's true. The mission of Jesus was to purchase us, to purify us. Number three, he took possession of you. Notice from this passage. You know, we have so much stuff, don't we? And we have so much stuff. I don't know how many of you have moved lately. Most of you know we changed houses the last few years. But we have so much stuff. Living in this great country, there is an excess of stuff. 
a lot of times. We have stuff sometimes that we've never even opened or sometimes never even used. And so our possessions sometimes become a little meaningless because we have so many things. But it is not so with Jesus. He saves us from sin and we become a prized possession to God. The mission of Jesus is seen here in that he purchased us. He purified us. He took possession of us. And he, took, he did all of those things so that we could produce zeal. As it says at the end of Titus 2.14. Jesus' mission was to create a zealous people. He wants you to live with a burning desire to please God. We're going to come back to that in just a few minutes and through the lesson as we even talked about last week. But notice, go, go a little further. It wasn't just the mission of Jesus as we read in Titus 2, but it's also the instructions of Jesus that show us God's desire for us to be zealous. And we did. We really talked about this last week, but the Lord's instructions, the words of Jesus in red, possibly in your Bible, in Revelation chapter 3, to the church at Laodicea, those instructions are about as crystal clear as you can get. There's no misunderstanding. Have you ever had anybody give you instructions? Maybe a boss at work, maybe a parent, maybe it was your father who said, you know, gave you instructions and then you were going, I'm not sure I understand that. I don't remember what he said exactly. Maybe we say sometimes it was as clear as mud, right? That's not so with Jesus. When he gives instructions in Revelation chapter 3, he clearly says that lukewarmness disgusts him. We get blinded sometimes by our wealth, by our comfort, by our earthly security, and we get lukewarm. But we know, we can know that God desires for us to be zealous because of the mission of Jesus, but also the instructions of Jesus. But then even third, actions. How many times does the preacher say that you need to talk the talk, but you also have to walk the walk? Jesus didn't just talk about it. He could have, I guess, he could have stood and orated all the time and told the people what to do. But it was his actions as well that remind us that God wants us to be zealous. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22 is the usual place. John 2, 13 through 22 is the usual reference that we give when we talk about the zeal of Jesus. And why is that? Do you remember the occasion there in John chapter 2? Because he, he's running away the money changers, because he's overturning the tables. Because he's showing passion. And we say, that's zeal. That anger, that godly anger, that passion, that's zeal. But that was far from his only expression of zeal. Do you ever go past John chapter 2 and read any further? What about how fervently he prays in Luke chapter 22 in the garden? What about his compassion in Matthew chapter 14 for the crowds? We see that he is moved with compassion. He has zeal more than, more than just when he's overturning tables. And above all, his zeal is evident in his relentless pursuit of the Father's will. Right? We see that praying there in the garden. Not my will, but thy will. A relentless pursuit of the Father's will reminds us, even to the point of the death of the cross, how zealous he was and how his actions back that up. Because for most of us, we would say, I'll be zealous, but only up to a point, and I don't think I can go any further. That's too much to ask of me. God truly wants us to be zealous because he is zealous. 
And because his son showed us an example in his mission, his instructions, and in his actions. And you know, we touched on this last week, but the author of the book that gives us the basis for this lesson and many of our thoughts, the book was Lifelong Zeal by Philip Shoemake. He takes what already comes to our mind when we think of passion or zeal, and what usually comes to our mind when we talk about passion and zeal is fire, but he takes that idea of fire and he builds upon it. And so what I would like for us to do in the time that we have left is to consider the seven steps that he puts forth in this book, the seven steps it takes to build a fire. These are listed in your bulletin, and we're just going to run through them kind of quickly here because, like we said last week, this is the South, right? It's what we do. We burn stuff. We have ourselves a fire sometimes, as we say. And if we went around the room and I asked you and we talked about the steps that it would take, I think that we would touch on all of them. And I say that to say that it's kind of obvious when we talk about the steps of building a fire. But if you'll bear with me for just a moment, I think you'll see where we're going and then we will certainly make application. We talked about the first part last week as part of our lesson, but it's preparation. If you're going to build a fire, you must prepare a place And when we're going to make application and think about our zeal, certainly you must prepare your zeal as well. Secondly, you have to get a lighter or a match, right? What good is that? We have sometimes at our house, you know, prepared the area and got everything ready to go. And then everybody's turning around looking, well, where's where's the lighter? Where's the match? You have to have something to ignite your zeal or to ignite the fire. So that's important. We we would certainly agree upon that. Number three, you would need to arrange your, your firewood. You have to have something to have fuel, to fuel your zeal, to fuel your fire. Let's kind of reverse what we just said. If you had a lighter or a match, but you had nothing to burn, then you're going to have a problem. So, again, common sense. Most of us have built a fire before, but you have to arrange your firewood. Number four, you have to shield it sometimes from things. Maybe protect it from certainly the wind. Of course, if it rains, there's a good chance you may not be able to have one, but, but maybe you can kind of protect it if you're in need of it at a campsite or something. But certainly the wind, the wind can take out your fire, and you basically have to protect it. Would you need to protect your zeal? We'll come back and talk about that in just a few moments. You can cook on it, right? Now, again, this is the South. I don't know. I've never had any, too many Northern friends to know if they know what s'more is. Uh, you know, remember the movie, How Can You Have S'more If You Haven't Had Any? But we cook s'mores, right? That's what we cook. We cook hot dogs and other things. But, but we cook s'mores on the fire. You use your fire for good. You cook upon it. But in the same way, you also share it. Now, I laughed about that as we kind of used it last week. We have to be careful we don't share too much, right? We don't want to cause a forest fire or something that will spread and cause damage, but we we do share it. We do spread the heat. We spread the light. We share the fire with others. There's a good chance that maybe you build one at your house from time to time and you just have a couple of people around it. Maybe it's just you and your family. But a lot of times, if we're going to have a fire, we're going to have people together. We're going to share the benefits of that fire. And then number seven, you have to stir it. If you light a fire and you leave it alone, it's going to die out, and chances are it's going to die out pretty quickly. You have to tend to it. Do you need to tend your zeal? And you see, here's the cool thing about going through that, because I know some of you are thinking, this is the sermon, right? This is Sunday morning, and we're wasting our time talking about how to build a fire. He's already said we all know how to make a fire, so why are we spending time talking about it? But here's the thing. Do you want to know how to build lifelong zeal? That's the thrust of the book and really the thrust of the lesson. How can we spend two weeks on this? 
but we need to know how to build lifelong zeal. And not only that, but we challenge you and ourselves that we would not only take that and build lifelong zeal in ourselves, but we would take it and share it with others. How do we do that? Well, I would submit, for your thinking this morning, you need a process. Any of you ever had a process at your work or your procedure at your place of business? I know that when I worked at Steel Warehouse for the steel company I worked for before joining you here, uh, I got tired of the processes and procedures. Some of you work maybe in government work, and you know how uh, stressful that can be. If you're really confused, you can see Mr. Friedel back here. I know he's got a long list of procedures that he has to, to go through where he works, and he can give you detailed uh, instructions on all that. But bring it back. If you want to build a lifelong zeal, you need a process. And let's think about the scripture together for just a few moments because when Jesus Christ built zeal in others, he didn't do it randomly. It wasn't, well, we'll just see what works. We'll just kind of toss it out there like fishing and hope something catches, something bites. He had a process. And I think we can see that. And what we want to do for our time together this morning is notice that in the life of Peter. Good old impetuous Peter. Jesus followed a recognizable process that produced lasting results. And let's look at it in the life of Peter. Number one, preparation. When we think about the life of Peter, Peter and many others were prepared by the law of Moses. The law of Moses did a lot to get Peter and so many people, other Jews, ready for the Lord. It gave them moral boundaries. It required accountability for sin. And even John the baptizer comes forth. And is going to pave the way, prepare the hearts of the Jews. So Peter was prepared. Notice number two, he had to have an ignition. He had to be ignited. His zeal had to be ignited. In John chapter 1, Andrew tells Peter, after they have seen the Lord, that they have found the Messiah. Have you ever thought of what Peter thought there? He probably thought, well, that's interesting. You probably met a really important person. But is he really the Messiah? And yet Andrew and the others come and they say, we have found the Messiah. But the spark that Peter gets comes with his first encounter with the Lord. In John chapter, or excuse me, John chapter 1 verse 42, Jesus gives him a new name. In John chapter 2, Jesus performs his first miracle. And Peter is ready as he is ignited to hit the ground running. Because you see the igniting factor here, the lighter or the match, is the encounter with the Lord. Do you remember last week that we looked at Luke, we looked at Luke chapter 5 where Peter sees the catch of fish and he hits his knees in front of the Lord and makes a commitment. It's the nearness to God that ignites Peter's zeal. And so I ask you here, are you close with the Lord? If you were with us Wednesday night, we talked about that as we extended the Lord's invitation for just a moment. We said that you have to be close. You have to be near I don't know if any of you have ever been in a long-distance long relationship, but those are tough because you cannot know someone when you're apart. If you want to ignite your zeal, it only comes from being close to the Lord. Yes, Peter had him in the flesh, but we have to find a way to be close to him as well. Number three, what about fuel? Adding that firewood. You see, Peter has enthusiasm. I mean, he's witnessed a miracle, and he'll witness other miracles. Jesus healed his mother-in-law. Do you remember that? Peter has enthusiasm, but Jesus knows that he is not ready yet. His zeal is not mature yet. He needs more fuel. So Christ teaches him to have greater courage. 
Do you remember in Matthew chapter 14, Peter and Jesus and the walking on the water? He teaches Peter, if you want to add fuel, you have to have more courage. What about Matthew chapter 16? When Peter says, I'm ready. When he says to Jesus, you're not going to die. And Jesus rebukes him. Jesus teaches him that he needs more wisdom. He says, you have to have more wisdom. You need more fuel. And even in John chapter 21 and verse 19, when he calls Peter to follow, even to the point of death, Jesus is telling him, you need greater diligence. It's not enough just to say it. You have to follow me. And he teaches him that he has to have fuel. He has to continue to grow. Number four, he had to protect. We have to protect our zeal. Do you remember in Luke chapter 22? Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34, Jesus warned Peter that Satan would bombard him with temptation. And Peter reacted like most of you would react, and myself included. Who, me? And not me. There is no chance in the world that I would turn my back on you. Do you remember Peter acting that way? Not a, not a chance. I have zeal. I am on fire. There is no way that I need to be protected. Peter says, not me, I'm ready. But Jesus knew. His zeal needed to be protected. And the Bible continues to alert Christians that danger is out there. Why? Why take the time? I mean, we could have received so many other instructions, but why, time after time, does the Bible continue to instruct Christians to protect themselves and their zeal? Well, it's because God knows that we're going to stumble. And when we stumble, he doesn't want us to lose our zeal. We can stumble. We can get right back on track. But only if our zeal is protected. Peter needed that, and we do too. Not only that, but we have to use our zeal. Oh, Peter. Peter was tried. Peter was tried, and Peter failed. Did he not? Three times, denying Jesus, locking eyes with the Savior, Peter failed. But did he stop? Peter stumbled. Did he quit? When we think about him, he did not quit. In fact, he came back stronger. And in Acts chapter 2, he is prepared to boldly proclaim the gospel on the day of Pentecost. He was protected. Jesus was trying to protect him so that then he would be ready, even as he stumbled, to come back and use his zeal and share it with others. His zeal was put to good use and produced wonderful fruit, even more so than the day of Pentecost, which leads us to the next point, number six, to spread. He used it, but he had to continue to spread it, to share it. He went from that day of Pentecost, as great as it was, but it wasn't the end. It was only the beginning. We go forward to Acts chapter 10, and he meets with Cornelius and studies with him and teaches him and his household, and the gospel is open to the Gentiles and to the world. You and I, as Gentiles, are here this morning because Peter did not quit. He used his zeal and then spread it. Do we do the same thing? Many of us will build up some zeal. We'll add some fuel, we'll mature, but we'll stop right there. You see, a lifelong zeal, building zeal in our lives is not going to stop right there. It's not going to stop at any of these until we get to the end. Because number seven, the Bible knows, tells us, God knows, that by the end of the New Testament, Peter is a true rock of faith. As we mentioned last week, we're studying First and Second Peter 
here in the auditorium class on, on Sunday morning. If you're not able to be with us, even if you go to one of our other classes, you can certainly go back and view those on our YouTube page and Facebook page so that you can catch up with those and think about the lessons we learned from Peter. Peter writes these epistles and we continue to learn from Peter's lifelong zeal. Peter writes in these epistles to teach others. He writes to teach us how to manage, how to stir, and how to expand our zeal for God's glory, even amidst troubles and trials. These are the steps. I don't know if you ever compared it with building a fire before, but it kind of matches up pretty easily. These are the steps that it takes. Some people might say that Peter would have been the worst of all. If we were lining up folks that, that we wanted to create zeal in, if we were lining up biblical people that said, well, let's start here and let's end here, Peter probably would have been at the end. Some people would, he, would say he was the hardest person. But notice, following the process, following the steps that are laid out on the pages of the Bible, Jesus did it. He took impetuous Peter with all his faults. He took Peter who did stumble and created in him a lifelong zeal that even though he denied Christ, he could still write these epistles that are speaking to us today. And you've guessed it. All you have to do is follow the process. You see, as we usually do as part of the sermon, we ask you, and I have to ask myself, even in preparation and presenting, to do a self-assessment. Where would you rank yourself in zeal? Where would you put yourself on these lists of steps? Where do you stand? Do you have lifelong zeal? Have you built some zeal? Maybe you're maturing in some ways as we think about protecting and using, but are you really sharing it? Are you tending to your zeal and helping others? Because as you build lifelong zeal, as you go through this process, and you become someone who has a burning desire to please God, then you can share that with others. Did you notice, I mean, we didn't mention the plan of salvation here. We didn't talk about baptism but if a person is going to serve God, they're going to follow this process. And along the way, they will do all they can. And today, this morning, as we conclude, let me give you the same reminder that we ended with last week. Lukewarm Christians can't make a difference in the world around them. If you think for a second that this lesson isn't for you, that it's not that big of a deal, we must avoid lukewarmness at all costs. Because lukewarm Christians can't make a difference in the world around them. We talked this morning in our class, studying the book of Peter, the epistles of Peter, about being living stones, about being the church, about being set apart, about being different. We have to be that way. We have to be hot on fire. And Jesus goes so far to say that if you won't be hot, if you won't have zeal, I would rather you be cold. That's how crystal clear the instructions are. God is calling you to be zealous, to have a burning desire to please him, to have a relationship with him, to serve him, to be with him. But how do we be with him? It's the nearness. It's the closeness. And it begins this morning by becoming a child of God. You see, it's more than just a burst of energy. It's more about just the moment or day in which you are baptized and are added to the church. The key is, though, you can't get started with lifelong zeal for God unless you are baptized and added to the church by him. 
so that you can begin to serve him. And as we're about to sing this song that's been selected in just a moment, it's been selected that through its words we might encourage you. Maybe you've never become a child of God, so you don't know what it's like to have that burning desire to please him. We'll be singing to encourage you this morning that you would commit, that you would be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, coming in contact with the blood of Christ, because it's only his blood. It's nothing the preacher can do. It's nothing the elders can do. But it's coming in contact with the blood of Christ that can forgive you of your sins. But you can. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter who you are in that sense. If you're willing to repent of your sins, to change your mind, allow that change of mind to change your actions, to put aside the sinful ways and follow after him, you can do that even this morning. Even this day. We would study with you as soon as possible so that you can begin a lifelong zeal by committing to him. Or maybe you've done that, but you know how tough it is to remain faithful. You know, life is like a roller coaster. We go through times that we are zealous, but then sometimes we fall into the depths of despair. We turn our back on God. We have sin in our life that separates us from him. Again, there's that idea. You have to be near to him. You have to be close. You need to be close to the church. And it's why we together this morning can sing to encourage you. Why this song has been selected. That whether you need to become a Christian or come back to him, we are thankful for the opportunity to pray with you and for you. We're thankful for our good elders that would come forward. One will come forward in a moment, even as we conclude this, to encourage you to make a change. Would you build lifelong zeal? Would you follow him? A desire to please him each and every day until the moment that either Jesus returns or our life is required. And we can then, because of our lifelong zeal, live with him for all of eternity. If you need to become a Christian or come back to him, we'd love to help you even now as we stand together and as we sing.